Jesus is about to complete the dying process. Healthcare professionals that deal with end-of-life medical issues, they call this the death journey, or literally the final journey. And the Son of God was about to finish His final journey. And I want you to look at Luke 23, verse 46, if you would please, in your Bible. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Now when the centurion, the Roman centurion by the way, when the centurion saw what was done, He glorified God, saying, certainly, this was a righteous man. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. As you look over this and as you think and meditate on these words, this this last statement that Jesus made, there are several things that we could point out today, several things by way of introduction that I'm just going to throw out to you and then keep going because there's so much here. I don't want to overload your mind. I don't want to overload your spirit. I don't want to give you too much at one time. We could talk about the fact that Jesus was committing and entrusting his very spirit into the hands of the Father. And that you and I as believers, we could talk about how we should commit everything in our lives into the Father's hands, just as Jesus did. Jesus was literally saying here, Father, I deposit my soul, my spirit, into your hands. We could talk about the fact that Jesus, in this final statement, just as he had done multiple times in this event of the crucifixion, he is quoting directly from the Old Testament, specifically from Psalms. This very statement, into your hands I commit my spirit, is a direct quote from Psalm 31.5. Once again, fulfilling prophecy from messianic references there in the book of Psalms. And we could point out that Jesus was dying with the words of Scripture on his lips. And that begs the question, what are we going to die with on our lips? Jesus died with Scripture on his because his whole heart and mind was filled and saturated with the Word of God. He, in essence, was the Word in the flesh. We could point out the fact that Jesus actually did fully die. It it says that he gave up the ghost. That's an old English way of literally saying that he breathed out. By the way, that's the way it's expressed In the Greek language, he breathed out. He expired. He died. He had a cessation of life. He came to the end of life and gave up his life. There is a theory that was popularized decades ago called the swoon theory. And it was made popular by liberal so-called theologians to say that, well, you know... The resurrection of Christ really wasn't a bodily, really wasn't a literal resurrection because Jesus didn't literally die. He just kind of passed out into a state of unconsciousness. He just swooned. He just went to sleep. 
like a baby goes to sleep at night. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not, you know, the most intelligent creature on the face of God's earth. But the Bible said that Jesus, D-I-E-D, you're like, he died. He gave up his life. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that means he didn't just pass out. He didn't just pass out and then they lay him in the tomb. In the coolness, in the dampness of the tomb, revived his spirit. And that's how he came back alive. No, friend. Are you hearing me this morning? Jesus Christ died and gave up his life. And they didn't place a comatose man in a grave. They placed a dead man in a grave. And on Sunday morning, that dead man got up was brought back to life by the power of the Father, and he walked out of that tomb. Why do we feel like we have to monkey with that? Just accept it by faith. The God that created the universe, he has no problem resurrecting his son back to life. Jesus died. That means he fully gave up his life. We could talk about that. Hebrews 2.9 says he tasted death for every man. And that doesn't just refer to a rapid sip. That means a full gulp. Jesus died. He fully experienced all the effects of physical death. We could talk about that. (laughs) We could talk about and point out the fact that Jesus' spirit was indeed separated from his human body. He said, Father, into your hands I commit. He didn't say, I commit my body. He said, I commit my spirit. This shows the separation of spirit and body and that the spirit of someone will live on somewhere forever long after the body ceases to function. That was true with Jesus. His body, his corpse went to the grave. Not to stay there long, but his spirit instantaneously, when he breathed his last breath, was ushered into the presence of the Father. And so it is with you and I, and by the way, every single living person on the face of this earth. As soon as they draw their last breath, their spirit is going to go somewhere forever. They're not going to cease to exist. There is nothing to the annihilation of the soul or the spirit. The spirit is never annihilated. It will live on forever somewhere. Either in an eternity, in never-ending life, in the presence of God in heaven, or eternity in a never-ending, continual dying in a place called the lake of fire. Those who do not know Jesus Christ at death will spend an eternity in the lake of fire. Those who know Jesus, they'll spend an eternity in the presence of God in heaven forever and ever. We could talk about that. But there's so much here. I want to just highlight three specific things this morning. I want you to listen. Because there's a message, there's something in each one of these three for every one of us. Notice with me first of all what I call the restoration of perfect fellowship. We see this in the words in verse 46 
Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now the last time Jesus addressed God on the cross, he was not able to say, Father. If you remember, he had to say, my God, my God. But now, because the work was finished, because sin had been eternally atoned for, perfect fellowship was restored. First of all, perfect fellowship was restored between the Father and the Son. Him using the term Father shows that that communion and that bond in that fellowship that you and I as humans will never even understand between the Father and the Son, that had been fully restored. The Father accepted the sacrifice, returning the uninterrupted, unhindered fellowship between God the Father and God the Son. They literally were one in the same and enjoyed an unequaled, indescribable union and bond and fellowship between the two. And now that, that, that fellowship was unhindered and restored because sin had been atoned for. Jesus on the cross, remember, had actually become sin for us in the full brunt of the wrath of God for all eternity. The infinite, the infinite wrath of God, remember, was poured out on Jesus as the object of that wrath. And on the cross, he fully took the wrath of God and infinitely paid the infinite sin debt for every single one. And now the eternal, infinite justice of a holy God was completely met and satisfied on the cross in Jesus Christ. And because of that, God the Father, who had to abandon His Son on the cross, could now, as we say, turn back around and come and be back in complete, unified fellowship with Jesus the Son on the cross. Now, as I'm saying that to you, I realize that there's no earthly way you and I can even begin to understand what all that means. But it not only means that perfect fellowship was restored between the Father and the Son, (laughs) it also means perfect fellowship was restored between God and man. The acceptable sacrifice of Jesus the Son on the cross, listen, opened access for man directly to God. Let me share with you, it's, 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 it's a parallel passage, but it's simultaneous with all of this, and it's the same event that's taking place. Listen to Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one. It says that when Jesus died, that means when he gave up the ghost, when he uttered this statement and died and drew his last breath, it says the veil in the temple was rent are torn in two from the top all the way down to the bottom when Jesus died. That that was significant for a number of reasons. But one writer said, just as the priests were resuming the slaughter of the Passover lambs following the three hours of darkness where they had to cease killing the lambs for Passover because they couldn't see, remember. Because of the darkness. And when the darkness was lifted, 
and the sun began to shine again just as they were resuming the sacrificing of these lambs that wouldn't take away sin. The Lamb of God on the cross was completing the act of taking away all sins. And these priests who were standing near, they were startled to hear the tearing noise coming from inside the holy place. God, he said, was ripping the curtain, separating it from the holy of holies from the top to the bottom. And that had never occurred since the holy presence of God had invaded the holy of holies and the holy place. There was a curtain there. One writer said, but now the one atoning sacrifice being provided in the precious blood of Christ. Access to this holy God could no longer be denied. So the moment the victim, the Lamb of God, gave his life on the altar, that thick veil which for so many ages had been the dread symbol of separation between God and guilty man, that veil without a hand touching it, mysteriously rent in two from top to bottom. Notice it didn't tear from the bottom to the top. It tore mysteriously. And I know the reason for the mystery and the miracle. It tore from top to bottom because I'm convinced that the hand of God the Father took that veil and tore it to shreds right in two. It's interesting, Jesus in Luke 21, verse 5 and 6, had predicted the temple's physical destruction. Now, God's tearing of the veil is symbolizing its spiritual destruction and symbolizing that the temple, friend, is no longer needed. Those sacrificial lambs are no longer necessary. The blood of bulls and goats and lambs will not atone for sin because the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ has now covered each and every sin. A.T. Robertson says that the veil, listen to this, was a most elaborately woven fabric of 72 twisted plaits of 24 threads each. The veil was 60 feet long and 30 feet wide. They say, according to the rabbinical teaching, that the veil was as thick as a man's hand. It was that thick. It would be like taking a Raleigh, North Carolina phone book, opening it up and trying to tear it, rip it with your bare hands. You're like, oh, I could do that. <laughs> you might be able to do that with a Goldsboro phone book, but not with a Wake County phone book, right? <laughs> Three inches thick. They say that you could take two horses and attach the veil to each uh, end uh, to the horse and have the horses go in separate directions, and those two horses could not tear the veil apart. But what a grown man, Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime, couldn't do. And I just picked his, I don't know where his name came from, but anyway. What the strongest man in the universe couldn't do. <laughs> and what two wild horses couldn't do. <laughs> the God the Father did, just like that, when his son died on the cross for our sins. <laughs> what does that all mean? Well, if you study the temple, you understand 
that there were barriers in the temple. Gentiles could only go so far. They had the court of the Gentiles. And then they had to stop. Women, incidentally, even Jewish women could only go so far. They had the court of the women. Then they had the court for men that were not Levites or priests. And they had to stop. and They couldn't go but so far. And then you had the spot where even the priest himself, he could not even pass beyond that point. But ladies and gentlemen, when that veil was torn in two, it screams out, access. Access. Access to what, preacher? Access directly to God the Father. Listen to me. You don't have to go through a man or a woman to get to God the Father. You don't have to go through a church. You don't go through a denomination. You don't go through a papal figure or a priest or a bishop or a cardinal. You don't go through a pastor. You go not even through your parents. You don't go through baptism. You don't go through church membership. You go straight to the Father through Jesus Christ and His shed blood. You have access. And not only when He said, Into your hands I commit my spirit, not only was there perfect fellowship restored between the Father and Son, but there was perfect fellowship restored between God and man. Do you have, have you taken full benefit of that fellowship this morning? I have to ask you today, gang, I have to ask you, not because it's my job, but because I have a holy compulsion in my spirit. I have to ask you, are you saved? Do you know that you're saved? Do you know that you know that you know that you've been born again by the Spirit of God? Could you lay your head down tonight or last night and know that if something were to happen to you physically, that you would immediately be ushered in to the presence of God? Do you know that, gang? That's what this access provides for you. It provides that full assurance and knowing that because of what Jesus Christ, here it is, has already done, just like we talked about last week. Now, there's nothing else for you that you have to do other than repent and believe the gospel. Do you believe this? You not only have access straight to the Father in salvation, but you have access straight to the Father in prayer. I don't care what need you have or what weighs on your mind or your spirit today. You can take that directly to God the Father, bypassing anyone else and going right to Him. You know what really, literally, it just boggles my brain and blows my mind. There are 7.2 billion, last count, people upon the face of this earth. And all 7.2 can be talking with God the Father at the same time. And guess what? He's awesome enough where he understands and cares about every single conversation going on with him. I can't carry on two conversations at one time. Now, I know some of you dear ladies, you can carry on five or six at one time and be able to retain every single thing that's said, and that's a compliment. I I, I struggle with carrying on two. 
And sometimes, because my brain gets sidetracked so easily, I struggle carrying on one conversation. Squirrel, you know. Not God. He doesn't have ADHD. He doesn't have attention. He doesn't have a problem understanding languages. He doesn't have a problem understanding your heart and your burden. You might not even be able to articulate in verbal expression all that you mean or feel or need. But God understands heart language and he knows exactly what's going on in your life because you have direct access to the throne of grace right now with whatever you need. For whatever's going on or going wrong in your life right now. Somebody needs that this morning. Somebody needs the assurance and to know that God's on top of your situation. Can I tell you, I read early this morning, Jim McComas, our dear brother, one of, he preached here last year, just a wonderful evangelist. He shared this morning that he had a, an conversation late last night with a gentleman outside of the hotel where he's staying. He's preaching in Dallas today. He said that the fellow just unloaded on him and shared that his wife, who's a deeply sweet and spiritual lady, but this man, he described himself as a godless heathen. And he told Brother Jim that his wife is suffering from stage four brain cancer. And he looked at Brother Jim and he said, that's, that's what I can't figure out about God. He said, I have a hard time believing that there's a God because of all that's going on with my wife. And he said, I want to say this to you. He said, either your God doesn't exist or he's not paying attention. He said, how else can you explain that my sweet, dear wife, who's a religious woman and who loves her God, she has stage four brain cancer and I'm a godless heathen and I'm completely fine. Can I tell you something this morning? Christian Powell doesn't have the answers to all those things. But I can tell you something right now. I know that regardless of who you are, when you come to the Father through Jesus Christ, you have perfect, complete access to God the Father. And He is there. And He is paying attention. And He knows infinitely what's going on in your world and in your heart and in your relationships and in your finances and in your body and in your mind and in your spirit. And I'm telling you right, He already has an answer on the way for you right now today. But I want you to see, second of all, not just the restoration, but I want you to see the reign of Christ over death. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus holds the supreme power over death. One writer said that people who died in this torturous fashion of crucifixion. They suffered from oxygen deprivation to the brain. They were incoherent long before they actually succumbed to death. 
They could barely breathe, let alone shout at the top of their voice. But I remind you, friend, what verse 46 says. It says, and when he cried with a loud voice. You see, Jesus wasn't overcome by death. Jesus took death by his own will and made it his servant. John 10 verse 18, he says, listen to what the scripture says. No man taketh my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it back up again. It says he gave up the ghost. That's voluntarily. He yielded up his spirit and released it into the hands of the Father. Listen carefully. Death didn't take anything from Jesus. Listen, Satan didn't take anything from Jesus. Satan doesn't even control or manipulate death. Jesus does. It bows before and is subject to Christ's authority alone. Death did not get the best of Jesus. And death does not have the last word. And it doesn't have the last word for me or for you either. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that death is the last enemy that's going to be defeated. But I'll remind you today, it is the enemy that's going to be defeated. And it's already been defeated. Because I remind you of what is said about Jesus. As John the Revelator sees an image of Christ in Revelation. He says, and I saw him, the Son of God. And it says that he has the keys. I saw keys in his hands. And it's the keys of death and hell. And my friend, whoever has the keys has the authority and the lordship. And I'm looking at some individuals that in the past 12 months... You have said goodbye to loved ones and precious friends. That's hurtful. And some of you even now are watching a loved one, a parent, a sibling, maybe even a child. You're watching them physically waste away. And you're tempted to think today that death is going to have the last word. And I want to remind you this morning, death never, because of Jesus, death never has to have the last word. And if Jesus has absolute authority over death, then gang, he has absolute authority over every single thing else in this world. And he has authority over your life. Some of you think that your life is chaotic and out of control. You look at the scene of the crucifixion and you think that God had lost control. And I want to tell you today that every piece and element of the crucifixion narrative was falling in place just as God the Father had ordained it before the foundations of the world. So it is with your life right now. God has you right where you are going through what you're experiencing for a reason. I'm not smart enough to be able to tell you what all he's doing. I don't have to be. He's God. He does a good enough job leading you and explaining himself. Are you listening to me right now? 
Some of you are right now in the throes of something that you can't even explain or articulate. And I want to tell you, you're not abandoned. That he's right there with you, orchestrating things in your life to draw you closer to him. And I close with this this morning, and I don't want you to miss it. I want you to hear me now. I want you to hear me. Notice in verse 47, we see the reaction of the centurion. Notice what is said. Now when the centurion, this is a Roman soldier who has seniority. He's been placed in charge of a band of soldiers. He has other men at his command. He is there to oversee the crucifixion events. He's the soldier in charge. He's the soldier who has to give an account to his authorities. He has overseen this whole event from early that morning until now 3 o'clock. He has stood there and he's listened to all the words that have been said. He's heard it all. And that same group of soldiers and that same crowd, that when it all got started, they were gambling and playing games for the robe of Jesus. That same band of men and band of soldiers that were criticizing and scorning Jesus making statements like, yeah, if he really is God, let him come down from the cross. But it's interesting that when you stand at the foot of the dying Lamb of God all day, you're not supposed to leave the same. And you get down to the end as Jesus dies And the gospel writers, not just that the centurion himself changed his mind, but the other soldiers did as well. Here in Luke, he says, surely this was a righteous man. But over in Matthew, he says something entirely different. He says, surely, listen, this was the Son of God. And then the Bible says here that the centurion glorified God. Literally, he praised God the Father at Jesus' death. What in the world? I personally believe that as much as he could understand that this centurion believed Christ for salvation standing at the foot of the dying lamb. I believe that I'll see that centurion in heaven. I believe he got saved. And if none of the other soldiers followed him in his belief in Christ as the Son and Lamb of God, I'm convinced that those other soldiers and those other guards there who crucified Jesus, they at least had a change of mind and a change of attitude. And here's what I'm going to say to you. You cannot seriously contemplate the cross without it touching and impacting and changing your life in some way. 
Contemplating the cross should result in life change. A thinking person cannot contemplate the crucifixion without walking away different than before. No prisoner there that these soldiers in the centurion had ever crucified had reacted the same way Jesus did. They've never seen anything like this before. And it totally changed their whole perspective. And I close with this today, and I'm serious. I want to ask you something. Here we are. We've been spending, I believe it's been seven weeks, talking about, carefully considering the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single Sunday, we've heard a message about the cross. Every single Sunday, I have tried by the help of the Holy Spirit to gather us together and let's just sit down and let's listen to and learn from the dying Lamb of God on the cross. Have you been listening? Have you been watching? Have you been in tune? Have you been in sync with what Jesus has been saying? I submit to us today how in the world, how in the world after seven straight weeks of contemplating the dying Lamb of God, how in the world can we as a church body not leave changed? What else is it going to take? To spur us and move us closer to Christ. I'm not talking about even the quality of sermons. I'm I'm, I'm serious. That has nothing to do with it. I'm talking about considering the truth of the word of God. And contemplating Jesus and his death and victory on the cross. How, how, How can we not leave different? Why is it, why is it that those of us who come here week after week, and many of us even three times a week, praise God, that we just, we just come and we sit and it breaks my heart as the pastor. We come and sit and we walk out the door the same way we came in time and time and time again. God never intended for that to be the way church is. And I say this with love because I'm right there too. But if watching Jesus die won't do anything for us, friend, I don't know what will. And if we can't somehow just have an inward desire in our heart this morning to get closer to Christ because of all that he's done, I don't know what it's going to take for us to want to get closer to him. Because I know this. You can't stare into his face and watch him die through the pages of this book and be the same. (laughs) That centurion didn't have any, any chance of walking away the same. And yet, why is it That at Faith Church and other Bible preaching churches all over this county. That preachers will get up and preach Jesus today. And we'll get in our cars and we'll go home. 
the same way we walked in. God forbid it. God, make it different today. I'm going to ask you right now, as we close this service, and we're done, but I pray the Holy Spirit ain't done. I'm going to ask you right now, right where you are, to say, oh God, do something fresh in my heart and life. Draw me close to you. Draw me close to the cross. Don't let me leave the same.